today, I have the privilege of continuing our series in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 7, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7. And um, in case you have kind of not been around for a few weeks, what we are doing is we're taking chapter 5 through chapter 7, and we're literally just taking it a verse at a time pretty much, or a group of verses at a time. And uh, we're going to be in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which, which is the, uh, the name of this sermon that Jesus is teaching, until uh, through May. And so today, uh, you know, man, I'm coming to Long Beach, and it's like, let's just, let's just get Jordan to talk about verses 27 through 32. Let's just do that. And in case you haven't read verses 30, uh, 27 through 32, uh, you don't know why we're talking about it. Today is one of those hard-hitting topics. It really is. Um, but, you know, as you read the Word of God, just by yourself, just, you know, alone, the Bible has a way of, of touching on every single part of us, uh, the way that we think, the way that we approach things and people. And that's the beauty of the Word of God is, is that it does that, right? And, I mean, it's alive. And so one thing I love about walking through large uh, passages of Scripture is that eventually all of us are going to get hit. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and to a certain extent, we all get hit every single week. It just depends if, um, if you receive it or not. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so today is, is one of those days where it's, it's going to hit all of us a little bit different. And, uh, but today we're, we're going to be talking about uh, lust and also uh, marriage and divorce. Okay? So that's kind of the big picture. But ultimately, uh, each, time that, each week that we talk about these subjects, there's a heart that's attached to it. And so what I mean by that is this. Jesus comes and uh, the, the Jewish community, they had what they called the law. And you guys would have heard about this a couple of weeks ago specifically, but the first five books of the Bible had what's called the law, the Torah. And so that's how they, they, they knew how to live life as the people of God, as a, as a civilization. They had civil laws, they had ceremonial laws, which were like the sacrificial laws. If you're reading the one-year Bible right now, you're writing a thick of Leviticus, which every other verse is like long lobe of the liver. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Long lobe of the liver, yeah, yeah. And um, it's pretty, pretty weird. If not, just go read the book of Leviticus, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's a method to the madness, but anyway. And then there's also the moral law. And you know, remember, we, we learned that the civil laws uh, went away with the state of Israel. Uh, and then you have the ceremonial laws that were fulfilled in Christ. And then you have the moral laws that, that Jesus lived perfectly because uh, we can't, but also that those moral laws are still in play. But there's, there's two ways to look at the law. There's the heart of the law and there's the letter of the law. And the letter of the law is just, hey, word for word, this is what it says, and, you know, I have to do it. And the heart of the law is understand, understanding the, the, the why behind the what. So the way that I kind of illustrate it is, is with a speed limit. Everybody knows why the speed limit is 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour in a subdivision. Okay, it's obvious. There's safety and security in that. Uh, and it's 70 on the interstate because that's appropriate for that type of setting, right? But the heart of the law is to provide for protection for people. And the heart of the law of God is to provide, uh, uh, you know, a sense of safety and security and also to be able to live a life that honors God. Now, the problem is, is that that law doesn't always line up with what we want to do. And that's where some people choose to not obey the heart of the law, right? And they kind of want to go do their own thing. And so as Christians, as we follow, follow God, 
there's certain decisions that we have to make that sometimes are not very comfortable. But there's two groups, groups of people, just like there is in Jesus as he's, with Jesus as he's talking to these people in the Sermon on the Mount. There's different groups of people here. There's different groups of people that call themselves Christians, but, like, are they really Christ followers? You know, and I, I'm not here to judge anybody and say, oh, you are or you aren't. But I know that there's people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And what they mean by that is I identify as a Christian because my mama was this or my grandma, you know, took me to church or blah, blah, blah. But there's not an action. They're not, they're not really following Jesus. And this is who Jesus is talking to here. And as he's establishing the heart of the kingdom of God, which is what he's doing in chapter 5 through 7, there's a lot of people who have been following Jesus. And uh, they've been following Jesus because he's been doing a lot of miracles. And they're, they're really excited about that. But here he establishes what it actually means to follow him. And, uh, and that's why these groups of scriptures, there's a lot of, a lot of times that people kind of skip around and skip over certain ones because they're difficult they're hard sayings. They're difficult to hear. Actually, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, uh, uh, Jesus says it multiple times throughout the Gospels. And one time he says it, and his disciples, like, after, it's all, after he's done teaching everybody, they, like, they, they all kind of gather together, and they're like, Jesus, so, like, were you serious about that? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's difficult. And he's like, basically, I said what I said. You know, and that's, that's what Jesus is going to do to us today. He's like, I'm saying what I'm saying. All right, so y'all ready for that? All right, okay, some of y'all are like, I don't know yet, we'll see. Let's jump on in here. Um, heart of faithfulness, Matthew 5, 27. You have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, whenever he says you have heard it said, he's referring to the Old Testament for us, the, the Torah, the law. And he's like, you've, you've basically grown up hearing this, especially in the Jewish community. They, they, they were, it was hardcore about the law, right? You, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you. Now he's about to bring the heart, not just the letter, the heart of the law. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery or sexual immorality with her in his heart. We can expand that to his or heart, his or her heart. So here was the line. This is the standard. This is what people understood. Hey, you can, I mean, pretty much look but not touch type of thing, right? You can, you can kind of, you can think but not really act and everything's okay. And Jesus is like, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that, that even to like in your heart to desire that, to, to that person or that, that thing or whatever the case is, that that in and of itself is immoral. He raises the bar and uh just that alone right there kind of shatters some of our mindsets in regards to kind of standards and, and what is sin and what is not and how close can we get to the line. Jesus is like, basically, don't even think about it. Don't, don't, even, don't even go there in your mind. And he's talking about lust, which is an extreme desire, a craving, a longing for whether it's sexual or whether it's material possessions, whatever it is, you can kind of expand that. Uh, it's, it's sin. And what's amazing is that in the word of God, we're taught to abstain from things or to have self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. We're taught to do that. We're, we're taught to, to elevate that type of thinking. But Satan, the enemy, does the opposite. He is like indulge, overindulge, go for it. And if anybody tells you to stop or not to fulfill every you know, desire you have, then basically just disregard them and, and fulfill and what's interesting is, um, I don't know how many of you maybe have ever been, you know, involved with, like, Satanism, but uh, the Satanic Bible, 
it's, it's really interesting how if you read the Bible and then you read the Satanic Bible, which is kind of a collection of a lot of people's ideas and stuff. But anyway, the, it's, it's a mirror image where the Bible says to abstain, this book over here says to indulge. And, and I, I think this part's pretty funny. It's like indulge until you're satisfied. Indulge that desire until it's fully satisfied, which every single person knows that there is no way that you ever fully satisfy any desire. Y'all, I could eat. I ate a steak last night. Guess what? I want that same steak again right now. Why? Because it was good. It tasted good, you know. And, and, and like we, we're always hungry. We always have an appetite. And an appetite for sin is never, you're never done. And so the whole idea that one day I'll just be fulfilled and my appetite will go away and then I'll be holy or then I'll do, it, it doesn't. It actually does the opposite. When people are entrapped in lust and they, they, they go after whatever it is, eventually it, it leads to some sort of death. Whether it's physical death or eventually, as we're going to learn here in a second, absolutely spiritual death. And this is the heart of the law. Don't do this. It's not don't do this just because. It, it's, it's don't do this as a boundary. I love my kids and I give them boundaries because I love them and I want them to live a healthy life. You can only eat two cookies. You can't eat 20 cookies because I'm going to eat the 20 cookies. And you can only have two, right? I'm eating the whole sleeve with the... Big old glass of ice cold milk, right? What? Because I, I love them. And so I don't want them to overindulge in something that might be unhealthy for them. And, and that thought process we have to understand about what we're even reading right here. Uh, adultery or, or sexual sin is progressive. It starts with a thought. It always eventually becomes a look. Eventually becomes a word. Eventually becomes an action. And a lot of times we don't see the lust or whatever that would be till the action. And that's where people are like, I can't believe that they did that. I can't believe. And it's like, I mean, it's not like it just happened. That started years ago. And it just developed to that place. And, and all of us, honestly, we have something in us that is like that. We all have a lust for something. It might not be as frowned upon as somebody else's lust, but we have this desire, and, and maybe some of us have been following Jesus for a long time, and so we've kind of, we've grown spiritually, and maybe we, there's self-control in our life. But you know what? It's still there. It's still in us, and we are still in this, this fight against uh, things that dishonor God. But lust is really a matter of the heart. And so these next scriptures, he goes on to kind of explain the severity of where lust can lead. Uh, but this is not to be taken literally. Um, I've actually heard of people who have taken these next verses literally. Uh, so I want to go ahead and pl- throw that disclaimer out here. Don't do literally what these next verses are about to, to do. It's to, to show you a point. Um, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than you uh, lose your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body is thrown into hell. And again, what he's really trying to illustrate here is that lust eventually leads to spiritual death. And like, you know, if you don't want to die, you've got to take this seriously. Like you've got to be willing to sever things in your life in order to, to, to you know, not fall deeper into the trap of where this leads. And so uh, I think that we should take it seriously. A lot of times things are hidden in our life 
And because it's hidden and we don't have necessarily uh, physical uh, or obvious um, uh, fruit or results, we don't experience the result consequences of those things, we think everything's okay. But that's not the case. It's not the case. Things even erode us that are, that are in secret. I've heard this phrase used many times that sin only has power in, in silence. And so the, the terrible thing about it, in one sense, you're taught by the world to overindulge and to just go for it. But if you choose not to do that and you choose to, to, to try to have self-control and you make mistakes or you end up in sin silent, like alone by yourself, then it plays a trick on you. Then it's like now you can't confess and now you're stuck in this secret sin. And both sides lead to death. It leads to, you know, it, it leads to the life that God has not, does not want us to live. And so that's, that's actually the beauty in confession, by the way. The beauty in confession is that it just pulls back the, the, the veil away from hidden sin, and it releases you from that. But a lot of people, they get stuck in situations like this, and they don't want to get out because they're fear of people judging them. You don't have to fear that. I've personally, and this is my story, I've personally never made a mistake and went to whether it was my dad, dad when I was younger or a, a leader or a friend, and confessed something and them have, have said something like this back to me. I can't believe you. Right? You're horrible. You know what I'm saying? I don't even want to speak to you anymore. Like, I've never experienced that. I've experienced the opposite. Grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and, th and then on the other side of that is life. And so just in case you find yourself today stuck in something like that, I want you to know that you don't have to remain in something like that. That God has put you in a community of people to help you walk through that and find freedom and healing. And so, so don't let that, don't let the enemy do that. Um, uh, Romans 8.13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So that's the choice. Do you want to you want to live, you know, a, a thriving life with God and with others, or do you want to live a life that's you know limping and eventually leads to some sort of death? Again, it might not be physical death, but but eventually spiritual death. But here's the big point about lust. Lust leads us to believe that we'll find satisfaction in something other than Christ and His righteous way of living. Lust is deceitful, it's a lie, and so again, we think that naturally we'll be satisfied in something that just like we explained earlier, just leads to more of an appetite. So we're always perpetually dissatisfied, and that's why sin is so deceptive, and that's why it's like being stuck in quicksand, and you just can, as the more you fight, the deeper it gets. We need somebody to throw us a rope to get us out, right? We need Jesus. So... This is the heart of those who are in the kingdom of God, okay, heart of faithfulness. And so the things that we lust after that don't line up with what God has for us, we choose and we align ourselves with what God wants, not what we want in our own fleshly state. So lust impacts many aspects of our lives, including our marriages. And I believe this, that's why Jesus goes from talking about lust into marriage, because many marriages fail because people don't have a handle on lust, whether that be physical attraction or whatever the case is, or even if it's lust around money or whatever. It's, it's, there's something that's out of balance. There's something that's not operating right. And a lot of times it leads to divorce. And so 
Before we really jump into these verses, I, I want to say a couple things about divorce. First off, I don't know many of you in this room. I don't really know your situations, which might kind of help me even communicate about these verses a little bit better because I don't know all the details. Um, but divorce has, has touched each of us in some way. I mean, you either have a friend, your family members, y- yourself, y- your kids, I don't know. Somebody close to you has, a, has gone through a divorce. And what happens is because it's such a sensitive subject, many times it's like, okay, let's just maybe skirt around this issue because, you know, there's some people that, that they need to hear truth and there's others who they, they really just need the grace side of it. And but we're walking through the word and, and we're going to hit every tough subject that comes up. And, but I want you to know one thing is that I'm going to do my best with the time that I have to speak about this subject with a lot of sensitivity because every situation is unique. Um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to give as much sensitivity as I can, but at the same time bringing some clarity and some truth and maybe some gravity to this, to this subject. And so I just want you to know that before I get into this because some of the stuff that I say could be, honestly, it could be taken a lot of different ways. You know, and I just want you to know my heart, no matter what situation you're in today, that there's hope and there's life and Jesus loves you and so do we. All right. So he goes on though and and in verse 31 he says this. It was also said, again, looking back to the Old Testament, Jesus is talking about the letter of the law. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. For many of you, you're like, what does that mean? Well, if you go read Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4, you can see kind of what that how that plays out. And what would happen is uh, the people begin to get divorced, and then the law made uh, kind of a, an allowance for men to divorce women if they gave them a certificate of divorce that would allow them to remarry. Now, that wasn't the intent of God to begin with whenever he created marriage, but the Bible actually says through the hardness of their heart that, that Moses began to give out these certificates. So anyway, the thing is, is that over time, you could, a, a man could divorce a woman for a plethora of reasons, and most of them were really dumb, really dumb. I mean, like, for instance, if a woman burnt the food, like she's cooking dinner and she burns the food, the man could be like, away with you, you know. Um, there's one, one uh, school of thought that, that said if a woman was loud, that the man could divorce her. I'm not even going to talk about that one. I'm just going to let that one go. But anyway, uh, it, but it's just a bunch of just really dumb stuff. It was very, very, uh, it was up to the, the person who was hearing it, how they might take it. And, and really all it was was a justification to get divorced, which was something that God didn't want people to do. And so um, there was two, cl- two, two schools of thought. And one was very liberal. They were very open. You could get divorced for a lot of those different reasons that I just kind of talked about. Uh, the other, though, was very conservative. And they were, they were pretty strict. Like there was really only one reason that you can get a divorce. And, and they were very strict. And so when Jesus says this right here, everybody's all ears because they're like, which side of the fence is Jesus going to fall on? And everybody's rooting for Jesus to be on, on their side. We still do that today in some, some way, shape, or form, right? Be on my side. Um, so, uh, but there's a couple more things about it. When a woman would get divorced, whenever she was divorced from her husband, it would put her in a really bad spot for the future. Because the man provided the, the money, you know what I'm saying, the protection, those types of things. And so a lot of times women were sort of just left to themselves. And, and, uh, and then they would, they'd have to get remarried, hopefully. And, and it was just, it would really put them out. It was very difficult, uh, a difficult life for them to live. And so um, 
so Jesus is bringing a correction to the Jewish cultural mindset at the time around divorce, but also God's heart for marriage. And so that's what, you know, today we want, we want to receive correction, but we also want to receive instruction about how does God view marriage. And so there's a, a lot of interpretations and con- controversy and, and conversations around the verses that we're about to read um, about divorce and remarriage. And so, so verse 32 says this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and we could expand that to man or woman, you know, uh, his wife or her husband, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And the NIV actually actually says to makes her a a victim of adultery, which is sort of what, you know, divorce does and what sin does. It it harms everyone involved, right? Um, Makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman or man commits adultery. And this is a hard saying with a lot of different approaches and a lot of different ways to look at it. And um, I, I'll be just straight up honest with you. The, the church overall, not like Northwood Church, but the church, these verses and other verses like these have been discussed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of how to properly, you know, what is he saying? How, and then what are these other verses? And, and, and there's a lot of uh, different ways of, of looking at these verses. But I think we should kind of talk about just a few things to help us interpret what Jesus is saying. Number one, Jesus is dealing with the problem of unjustified divorces. We have to understand the heart of what's going on. You've got a whole group of people that he's talking to who are flippantly getting divorced, right? Just quitting on the covenant that they made before God and man. You know, there's, there's quitting on it. And then you've got people who are over here who have more of a, a, a solid or, or a, a mindset about marriage and divorce that's got more gravity to it, right? More about what God thinks about it. And so he's, he's not doing a dissertation on marriage, first off. This is a part of a, of a larger sermon. And so it's not like he's going through every single situation. And you know what I'm saying? He's throwing out, he's correcting a thought here. So he's, he's uh, dealing with the problem of unjustified divorces. And he's also emphasizing that divorce is taken too lightly, which I think is a shoe that really fits our culture today. That a lot of people do take divorce too lightly. Now, here's the deal. In this day and time, day and age, as far as the Jewish community is concerned, they took divorce a lot more flippantly than anybody that I've really personally known. I've known a lot of people who have gotten divorced and I never met one of them that said, yeah, my wife burnt the food the other night and I'm done. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, just to be honest with you. Uh, it's always been a, a process. It's always been a painful process. And so I, I think that, you know, and some of you might have a different experience. You've met some people that are like, you know. But, but I think the majority of people who do get divorced, it's actually, it's not that flippant. Jesus is correcting those with that mindset, though, but he's also raising the standard and clarifying his standard for what it means uh, to, to be married and what the grounds are for divorce. Nowadays, we have grounds like irreconcilable differences, which sometimes just means we just don't like each other that much anymore. Nobody's really done anything that bad, but it's just eh, kind of just done, you know. And that is, um, um, 
that's one of the cultural things I think that, that, that we have to come up against is, uh, first off, I think marriage in and of itself is just irreconcilable. <laughs> I've been married for 15 years, and uh, we still argue about where to go eat sometimes. You know what I'm saying? There, there's just, it, it's just part of it's just part of, you know, just the way that life is. But um, there are more serious issues than that, and these are some of the issues that we want to talk about. What are the, the reasons for potential, potential divorce that are covered by Scripture uh, clearly, and then some that are not clearly covered by Scripture, but some make a, a, a case for biblically. Well, number one is this, abandonment. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, you can go and you can read uh, Paul talk about this, but whenever a, uh, two unbelievers were married and then a, uh, one would get you know, saved and become a believer, um, you know, obviously in that time there were some people who would say, well, at that point there should be a divorce, and, and Paul's like, well, no. You don't have to necessarily divorce because one of you is a believer and one of you is not a believer. He says, but however, if, if an unbeliever does abandon the marriage because of that, then, you know, that it is what it is type of thing. You know, so, and you can kind of read, he didn't just say it is what it is, but I don't have time to go into that chapter. So 1 Corinthians 7 would be an example of, uh, of a reason for divorce in the Bible. Another reason for divorce in the Bible is uh, infidelity. We just read that scripture, except for sexual immorality or adultery. Um, and, and that is another uh, grounds for divorce. But I, I want to, at this point, focus in on a, a, a really big word that's uh, on the screen. Potential divorce. Because just because these things happen doesn't mean that there must be a divorce. Okay? Um, some people at times may be looking for a really good reason for divorce, but there's actually an interpretation of of grounds for divorce that has to do with ongoing sin in a marriage ongoing if somebody uh, makes a mistake that and there's repentance that there really should be reconciliation right and 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 so like i said there's a big spectrum to this i think that the heart of god though in this in this is, is to seek reconciliation not just to take out the sword you know and i know that's easier for me to say here not in that situation i totally understand that but still, I think that there's a, um, there's a heart here of like, like, don't go for the jugular, you know, on, on the, and many of us, we've seen people, and maybe this, this is a shoe that fits for you, but when something happens, it, people immediately go for the lawyer, you know, immediately, I'm, I'm getting everything I can out of them, you know, and, <clears throat> and there, can, there can be a sense of vengeance in that, that we actually just talked about recently. And, and, and the Bible says that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. And so th there's a lot of, we need a lot of help when navigating these situations. There's another, um, there's another reason for divorce, and, and this would be one that's less clear in the Bible, but, um, but some would say is, is very biblical, um, but I think is also something that we, we must use a lot of wisdom and discernment in. It's surrounding abuse. And um, I've had people in my own family who have been in marriages where there's abuse. I've had people that I'm close to, uh, physical, uh, emotional, and it is a very tough, um, it's a tough thing to walk through for a lot of different reasons. You know, physical abuse is a, it's easy to see a lot of times, right? I mean, an action was done to someone, and you could really, you could put your finger on it. Like, that's what happened. He or she did this. They threw this. They hit this person. Like, it was physical. There was, 
But I tell you the one that's even more subtle but just as damaging is, is emotional abuse because you can't always put your finger on that. Subtle. But it can break someone down in the same exact way, right? And, and then to further that, you have some, some people call something emotional abuse. They call it abuse, and it's really not. And then other people say it's not abuse, and it is abuse, <laughs> right? There's different thresholds. There's different he said, she said. There's all of these things that go into that. It's very, very difficult to just come to a conclusion on at times what the reason is and whether that is enough of a reason. And so I'm not here to clearly define those moments, by the way. It's impossible for me to do that. But one thing I do believe in strongly is I believe that Christians who are married and who find themselves in these things should first and foremost seek spiritual guidance. And what I mean by that is someone that's not connected to the situation more like an objective voice, a pastor or someone like that, um, to help walk through those things because of the range of things that could be going on, you know. And, um, and every situation is unique. Every, every couple is unique. And that's why there needs to be a lot of, of gravity around that and a lot of time given to it. But seek biblical counsel. Um, but if you're in danger... Uh, at the same time, seek legal counsel. Seek someone. Get, be safe. This is a scripture. This is a this is a um, a point that throughout history, some people have not handled very well, especially when it comes to women in marriages where there's they're in danger, and so they will be sent back to a very unsafe place, and really terrible things happen. And I think that's a. It's really not the way it's supposed to be, okay? And so if you have an experience where maybe somebody, that's how they taught it and that's what they told you to do, um, I think there's, again, spiritual discernment and godly biblical wisdom that we should use in these types of situations, okay? Uh, and some things need to be done quickly in order, but, you know, there is, there is separation that is a step before divorce. And separation, I heard somebody put it like this, separate, the goal of separation is reconciliation, that actually is the goal of separation. Um, and uh, for some, it's a, it's a stepping block to go start playing the field again. <laughs> you know? It's like, that's not, that's not the goal of that. But sometimes there does need to be space, especially if there is uh, abuse happening, right? Are you all with me? It's kind of make a sense. Um, so with all that being said, Jesus is really saying that divorce for an unjustifiable reason, apart from these things, is sinful. And not only is it sinful, but just like sin does, a lot of times a, a, one sin, one sinful act leads to more sinful acts. It leads to a, a development in that. Think about vengeance even, right? A person that's been maybe they're the victim in the, in the affair or in the whatever, and then all of a sudden this person out of anger and pain begins to retaliate, and then they begin to, you know, do things and say things that are sinful in, in, for themselves, it can play, it play itself out a lot of different ways. But Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I know it's difficult, but at the same time, this is the standard. Now, um, one thing I want to say before we move on, if you find yourself in this position, uh, whether you're divorced um, or, you know, some of the things I said kind of hit home, I don't want you to feel condemned right now. 
one thing that happens is whenever we've, we've messed up or maybe we identify something in the, our past and we're like, man, I really, I missed it on that. What can happen is we can begin to live our life presently in condemnation based upon that because it's kind of hard to maybe fix that, okay? And, and so I, we have to really hold this intention. Don't leave here today in condemnation. Don't leave here today with this big weight upon you. We're, we're going to resolve a couple of things here, okay? But we still have to talk about these things because guess what? There's a lot of people who are either married right now or young people who are not married right now. And, and they need to understand what decision they're making by getting married. What covenant they're entering into. That this is not flippant like our culture says it is. Okay. You know, we got people with prenups everywhere. And people like going into it with this mindset that, oh, it might not work out. And that is not what we see a, the basis of a biblical marriage. It's just, not, it's just not there in the Bible. And so we live life differently. Why? Because we're in the kingdom of God. So we have a heart of faithfulness to God. And so his standard is our standard, right? So that, that's, that's the heart of this. But let's kind of back out for a second and talk about what is marriage supposed to be? What's the original intent that God had for marriage? Well, I believe this. God created marriage to be a sacred and permanent union and partnership between a man and a woman until death. I married somebody last week. I mean, it's a beautiful wedding and all that. And, and I said those words, until death do us part. And they said it. I was like, you meant that? <laughs> yes. All right. Through thick and thin, sickness and in health. We're, we're, we're one. We're one flesh. Mark says that. Uh, Jesus says it in the book of Mark. He echoes uh, Genesis. And he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And divorce separates what God has put together. It's, it's actually, divorce is, is a violent thing in regards to our emotions. You know, whenever you get married, as, as you begin to, to fall in love with somebody, there's a soul tie that's formed. And that's a good thing. Did you know that you're supposed to have a soul tie with, with someone that you're, that you're marrying, that like there's supposed to be this, like we, because you're coming, you're becoming one. And so whenever those two people, no matter the situation, have to tear apart, not only are you tearing apart your emotions, but then you're also tearing apart your family. You, you, all, all of the stuff that goes with that, divorce creates trauma. And so not only is divorce not God's heart for marriage, but it also just, it's really, it's not for God's glory, but it's also not for our good. Not really. And I've seen some people that I believe were on the edge of breakthrough in their marriage quit just short of actually getting on the other side of that, that thing that happened or that, that season that was really tough. Have you ever seen that uh, picture? It, it goes around like social media a whole lot. It's a picture of like a, um, it's like a, a dirt hill or whatever. And it's a side shot of it. And it's this little cartoon character. And he's digging like digging through it, and he, you know, got like the, the pickaxe or whatever, he's digging, 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 and you see him get all the way at this tunnel, and he's almost about to break through through the other side or whatever, you know, like through the rock or whatever, and he's right there, and then he turns around and he goes back because it's too difficult. No, just me. Anybody seen that? Okay. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> so that, that picture, I'm telling you, for so many people, that's, what, that's where they're at in their marriage. 
it's they're, they're right there, and it's hard, and you've been dealing with it for years. I've got people in my family, and, you know, I'm going to hold back some information, but years, a decade, difficult, y'all, max level difficulty, 10 years, didn't quit, didn't quit, and today their marriage is better than it ever was. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I know it stinks, I know it's difficult, I, I, I know that you just, you just want to, you feel like if you could break out of it, like, it, then you'd be happy. But sometimes on the other side of that struggle is actually the, the life that you're really wanting and, and, and the marriage that you're really wanting. And so for some of you, you just need to hear, just don't give up. Just don't give up right now. Be encouraged to continue to fight for your marriage. But um, we're held to a high standard. And I believe Christians are held to a higher standard than the than the, the culture. Just because culture normalizes something does not mean that it's normalized for us. That, that's the way that I live my life. I know what I know what people say. I know what blah blah what they did. I know what everybody thinks. It just doesn't affect me, because it's like yeah, but I'm basing my life off the Bible, and so you know you do you, <laughs> but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it like Jesus wants us to do it. So. As we get towards the end of this, the question that I want to answer is, why does marriage matter? And, you know, surprisingly, I think this question is something that our culture really needs to know. Why does marriage even matter? For many people, marriage seems like an inconvenience. Uh, you know, it's, it's an issue. It's a, it's a, it makes things more difficult. I know nowadays a lot of people, it's like, well, hey, we've been living together for however long, and really what's the point? Um, and I understand the culture thinks like that, but the church cannot receive that type of mindset. There's a certain pattern that God wants us to follow. And we can learn about that in, in Jewish culture in regards to how they approached marriage. I think that there's, I mean, man, the way that the, 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 way that the Jews, especially in the word of God, approached this whenever they were doing it properly was, uh, was beautiful. And I think that we should have those same mindsets. And so we take it seriously. We take living together as a serious thing. You know, uh, it's, it's a part of becoming one. And so, so there's a pattern to follow. But marriage matters for a couple of different reasons. Number one is this. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. You could go read Ephesians chapter 5 later on today. But I want to read an excerpt from it because that's what even Paul says. He says, uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. We just read that a second ago. He echoes that again. But verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the picture of a man and a woman uh, in the covenant of marriage is a picture of God and man or the covenant that God has made with man. Okay, God made the covenant with man. Uh, one thing, if you want to go read in, in Genesis where, where Abraham uh, enters into a covenant with God, it's a one-sided covenant that God created the covenant with Abraham and, and the Israelites. They had nothing to do with it. It was all him. And it was, it's, it's a picture of his faithfulness to us. Through everything that the Israelites went through, God still remained faithful. Through their unfaithfulness, he remained faithful. And he fulfilled his covenant through Jesus. And that is the standard by which we live. Honestly, y'all, there there's been times in my marriage that that's all I stood on. Me and my wife, especially our first year of marriage, was horrible. Horror. I mean, we loved each other, I think, but we did not like each other. <laughs> like, we were, it, was, it was toxic. Like, we didn't want to be in the same room together. We'd go days without speaking. 
Y'all know that awkwardness whenever you're days without speaking in your own home. It's horrible. And I literally remembered at one point, I was like, I, first off, I understand why people get divorced who are in a situation. Neither of us did anything to each other. Like, there wasn't the, the things that we just talked about, the reasons. We didn't have any of those reasons. It was like, again, like what restaurant are we going to go to? It was, it was, there was a lot of stuff going on. And, um, and what it was is, is we were just, we were very selfish. And you know, any broken marriage, you can go find, in so, and some level, there was sin, and it, and it always manifests itself in the form of selfishness. There's not one divorce that's ever happened that didn't happen because of selfishness. In some way, shape, or form, it, it, it comes back to this. I can't or I won't uh, uh, put down who I am in order to serve you, you know. And again, with that being said, because I, oh, I don't know all of your stories, there are a lot of nuances and there's a lot of unique situations. So for some of this, if the shoe fits, wear it, okay. If it doesn't fit, what did I say uh, a few weeks ago? If the shoe doesn't fit, put it on the shelf. One day it might fit, you know. <laughs> um, but you all understand the heart of what I'm saying. At the root of it, many times, all the time, it's I just didn't want to change. Or The two becoming one is difficult. So why does it ma- matter? It's, it's a picture of the gospel. That's where we learn about God's faithfulness and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And we learn and we see how Jesus laid down his life for the church, which is his bride. And in the covenant of marriage, we lay down our life for one another. We do. So the second thing is that marriage... Everybody loves this one. Marriage is a tool of sanctification. Sanctification is being made more like Jesus. And that's what marriage is. It's refining you. It is grinding you. You know what I'm saying? But it's making you, if you allow it, just like every other thing in life. If you you say, God, what are you doing in me? That question is not cliche, by the way. It's not cliche. It is a heart of submission and surrender to the process and the plan of God, remaining in truth despite your feelings and remaining in the process even though you want to bail. God, what are you doing in me? We can take that really practically and apply it to the last couple of years. Since 2020, I was just talking to somebody uh, after the, uh, before the first service. And I said, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I think I'm realizing this year how tough 2020 really was, you know, kind of like the fallout of a lot of different things relationally and, and just, I, you know, it might not be your story, but it is mine, fatigue, and it's like, oh, we should be moving on past that. I don't know, man, it was pretty tough. <laughs> Everybody kind of had different things, and, and so it dra- things drain us at times, but you know, um, I had a buddy a couple of, couple of months ago, uh, actually me and Micah were, were together with this guy, and and, um, and I was just sharing some stuff that I was dealing with and some struggles I was having and, and frustrations. And he said, man, listen, he said, I'm, I'm hearing everything that you're saying. He said, but until you realize that God is crushing you, you're going to continue to go around the same tree. And you're going to continue to blame shift or you're going to continue to make excuses or whatever the case is. You talk about hard sayings, right? This guy just like hit me in the face. And he said, um, he said, the reason I can say that is because I've had this same exact thing in my life. And he said, it wasn't until I, I changed the questions I was asking, changed the way that I was praying, that I began to see how God was doing something in me, and it was painful. The Bible talks about 
us being crushed and, and that olive being crushed and the oil that comes out of that olive is, is, is very valuable. In some of our marriages, that might be the picture right now. Some of our relationships, God, it's just like that process is just squeezing us. And maybe we're called, and we don't want to hear this, but maybe we're called to remain in that situation. But I'm not happy. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not happy. Like happiness is the pursuit of everybody, right? Happiness. And, and I just don't see that flippant definition of, of happy in the word of God. I see the definition of holy and, and us doing what's, what's, what God wants us to do as the standard. And, and I just think that we should set that as a standard in our life. Let's not seek to be happy. Although God, I think, wants us to, to have a, um, a good life and, and, and be blessed and all those things, but not at the expense of holiness. Right? And, and I think that's just where we should live. It's where, and I think when we look at marriage as a picture of the gospel and a tool of sanctification, if you apply those two things to your marriage, and young people, if you will, if you will go into your marriage with this type of filter, you set the, 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 the threshold for if the word separation or divorce is ever mentioned. You set it so high that you probably will never even have that conversation. Right? I'm telling you. There's a story in the Bible. As we close today, I just want to share it. It's, um, I, think it, it, I think this is for all of us. It's where there's a woman who's caught in adultery. She's caught in the act of adultery. Religious, leader, religious leaders, they find her. And they, in their pride and in their trying to trap Jesus, they bring this woman to the feet of Jesus and they throw her down. Can you imagine the humiliation that that is? It's just, that right there is just a horrible approach. But they expose her, they throw her out there, and they're testing Jesus. And they're like, hey, Jesus, you know, let's talk about the law. The law says that she should be stoned for what she's been doing. She should be executed. And, you know, you can even kind of see that they were there when Jesus raised the standard of the law, the heart of the law. Like he, like he, he raised it. And they're almost to a certain extent probably betting on the fact that he'll do it again. You know what I'm saying? Like, like not only should she be stoned, but her whole family should be, should be stoned. Like, you know what I'm saying? Let's, let's, Jesus is going to, because they're trying to trap him. And Jesus doesn't say anything at first. He just kind of gets silent. And eventually he says, you know, those of you without sin cast the first stone. Which, can you imagine the awkward moment? <laughs> These guys are ready. I mean, they're ready. They're like, yeah. And when he says that, it disarms them. They drop their stones and they walk away. And Jesus, this is one of the the most powerful stories in the Bible. And the woman, you know, there's no accusers there. And he says, um, which I think is also interesting, accuser. You know, it says that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And some of you, that's where you've been for a long time. You've been accused for a long time. Some of it might have been true. Like it might, the people or the things, the thoughts, it might actually be factual. Like, yeah, you did do that or yeah, you did say that or whatever. But the, the enemy just seeks to continue to bring that up because he thrives in a condemning environment. And that's what they're doing. They're accusing her. And, and he says, you know, where are your accusers? And they were gone. And uh, he said this. He said, I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not going to condemn you. He said, 
but get up and go and sin no more. For a moment, picture that woman and the relief that she felt. She was condemned at that moment, but Jesus shows us that even in the face of condemnation, his grace can overcome that. Now, here's the deal with the story. A lot of us, we're thinking of adultery, we're thinking of sexual immorality, we're thinking of marriage, and da-da-da, we're kind of maybe thinking it's other people. Y'all, in this story, we are the woman that got thrown down at the feet, and all of us are guilty of sin to some degree or another. At the very least, born in sin, we were born in an adulterous state against God. But by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice, which is the beauty of the gospel, Jesus has the authority, and he's saying it to you today, don't be condemned. Repent and go and sin no more. And so if you find yourself today steeped in lust, steeped in, in, in fulfilling cravings, you, can't, you don't have power to overcome, there is power to overcome. If you find yourself in a marriage or a relationship that's not honoring God, or maybe you find yourself in, you've been divorced and, and there's this heaviness, let God convict you, but don't leave this place condemned today. We repent, we submit ourselves to God, but then we go in the power of the Spirit and we go and we sin no more. So I feel like some of you, you need to hear that today. It took a little extra time to communicate that. Because the enemy will take the truth of the gospel, will take the truth of the word, and use that like a sledgehammer on us, where God doesn't use the scripture like that. He wants us to change, he wants to sanctify us, absolutely. But there is love and grace and truth all together, and it, it, it propels us into a life of holiness. It doesn't push us, doesn't manipulate us, propels us into a life of holiness. That's what God wants for us, so. Would you bow your heads? I want to pray for you right now. Just allow God to bring some clarity to your heart right now. Just say, Lord, just search my heart. Search my heart. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your heart, the heart of the kingdom. God, a heart of faithfulness. That we would be a faithful generation. A faithful generation to you. And that we would represent you well. I pray for every person in this room. God, those who may be far away from you. And God, I pray that you bring them close. If you're in this place and, and you've been far from God, you know it. But today, you want to come back. You want to realign your life with Jesus. It's not a big, long, complicated process. It's about your heart being submitted to him. And so just right now in your own words, just say, God, I give you my life. I surrender my heart to you. God, I repent of my sin. I repent of the things I've been doing. And God, I thank you that you have released me from the penalty of sin based upon the cross. Today, God, I pray that you breathe life into us. You breathe hope into us. In Jesus' name, amen.